Welcome to the Book Blast podcast and our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy. We are showcasing a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses, along with a trailblazing publisher specialising in translation. Today, I am interviewing Rose from Elan Publishing, dedicated to publishing books about the world and its many cultures and societies. We are joined by Robin Marsak, who has translated a series of books by Nicolas Bouvier for Elan. He was a traveller in the real sense of the word, writing about now-forgotten communities. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. Thank you, Rose and Robin, for coming to be interviewed. You bought Eland 15 years ago and have built up a remarkable collection of distinctively and beautifully designed books about the world and its many cultures and societies. Tell us about the classics list, the originals list, Dervla Murphy and some of your personal favourites. Yeah, we bought it, I think, in fact, 20 years ago now. It's a, it's a rather strange hybrid of a publishing company. It's not... um. The majority of our list is composed of brilliant books that have fallen off the back of other people's publishing other people's publishing lists books that we feel shouldn't have been allowed to go out of print books that we've therefore brought back into print and we have a sort of um, a usp of keeping all our titles in print so once we take on a book we keep it in print forever so in a sense we're kind of staking our staking our business on the brilliance of, of a book itself and the, the the feeling that it will continue to appeal to new generations of readers. So the business is that, the classics list. But over the years, a number of very interesting books have come our way, new books, new travel books. And we have occasionally been tempted to um, uh, to publish new books, including, I mean, they all come, they've all come in different sort of come to us in different ways and and the book we're going to be talking about later on really was uh the product of our own passion for Nicolas Bouvier's work the, so this new translation was something that we we really wanted to do because there were parts of his earth which had never been translated and which were obviously very important otherwise we've published I, yes I think about a dozen books dozen, dozen new original books over the years as for personal favourites, one of them has to be The Way of the World by Nicolas Bouvier, which I stumbled on in uh, 2006. I fell completely head over heels in love with and was very sad to discover that um, Bouvier had actually died um, eight years before I found, I found that book. Other books that I love, I have a particular passion for Russia, and so I also love Journey into the Mind's Eye, which I know is close to your heart, Georgia, by Leslie Blanche, yeah. And, and I suppose Full Tilt, another book that's so par- so interestingly parallel to Nicholas Bouvier's The Way of the World, Full Tilt by, by Dervla Murphy, almost exactly the same journey in many ways, from Europe to Pakistan. Uh, her journey was made 10 years after uh, Bouvier. So Bouvier travelled in 1953 and Dervla made her journey in 1963. And they are both absolutely stupendous in their very, very different ways. And and actually, are very. it's very interesting to read them close to one another. And you mentioned Pakistan there. One of your originals 
Isambard Wilkinson, is it? Yeah. That's right, yeah. He was a journalist there for um, a long period of time and he's a very spirited character. And so as well as a sort of a, um, a deep analysis of the political scene, he's forever partying in the back streets of Lahore. So your rediscoveries, you mentioned some, but they include Gavin Maxwell, Norman Lewis, Jonathan Rabin, Martha Gellhorn, Leslie Blanche, Roger Vaillant. Uh, publishing classics requires a special acuity. What makes a classic? Yeah, <laughs> such a difficult thing to put your finger on. Yeah. And and what I often say is, you know it, you know one when you read one. They have a kind of a a timeless quality to them, an intelligence that goes way beyond the specificity of 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 the setting or the the content the kind of book that you could confidently put into the hand of any reader and know that you know if it's the right time for them they will enjoy it tom rosenthal said of the late great sonny meta that he was able to handle the crudest commerce and the finest literature with equal skill this paradoxical challenge is faced by all publishers how do you manage to balance crude commerce and literary finesse? Well, I wouldn't put myself anywhere close to Sonny Meta in my ability to do that. Uh, as I said earlier, Eland's a very particular kind of beast. I suppose I'm more interested in the latter than the former. I'm more interested in the uh, the finest literature than the, what was it, the crudest the commerce. Crude, crude commerce. commerce, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and Eland hasn't, you know, by by this hasn't been a massive success by crude commercial standards, but it very happily trots along, uh, <laughs> manages to do a bit more than wash its own face, and we're immensely proud of it. I think that I, yeah, I think we concentrate more on the literary quality than we do on the on the commerce, because we're a very small business. We've always felt we have to be absolutely passionate about the books that we publish in order to give you the staying power to put in the time and the energy that is required to try to get a book out to its readership. So we have to love something very, very uh, passionately in order to stake our money uh, on it and to and to get fully behind it. You do, of course, want the books to reach as many people, relish by as many people as possible. So then I suppose crude commerce is right at the other extreme of that. So therefore these days, and there's a great deal of competition out there. So yeah. is beautiful writing enough to sell a book these days? Or, you know, is it all about marketing and yeah. how it can change things? There are, there is, as you say, immense competition. I think there are 180,000 new titles published in the UK every year. So if you think about that, you can lie down and just sort of give up. The thing about Eland that we've always we've always had to is this idea of being a niche, having our own niche. It's been very important in terms of marketing for us. We are absolutely known for producing travel books and travel books only. We, we've found that over the years that has become, it's become a brand that people recognize and there aren't very many brands in, in publishing brand. There are brands in like Carcanet, Blood Axe, Poetry, Having an having Eland as recognised and mm. keeping to the same livery, so that people really know an Eland book when they see one. We have a devoted readership. We have people who buy every book that we publish. So that's sort of that allows us to get a book 
out into the world. And because we keep all our titles in print, there are endless opportunities. We we communicate regularly with, with our regular readership. We have plenty of opportunities to sort of profit from unexpected. I was just thinking that, you know, the, re, re, the release earlier this year of that, um, the film, The Lighthouse, it's allowed us, it allowed us a marvellous opportunity to, to, to um, get the word out about a fantastic book that we have on our backlist by uh, Tony Parker about lighthouse keepers. He was Britain's most fantastic oral historian and he gave a voice to people who wouldn't otherwise be heard and one of his books was about um, lighthouse keepers. And so we, we took the opportunity to, um, to put out on social media that's produced quite a number of sales. Looking into your crystal ball, in the wake of Brexit and now the coronavirus pandemic, what does the future hold for so-called traditional publishing, in your view? I, it's, it's been so interesting because when um, when digital came in, there was a terrible fear that um, publishers would go the way of, of music original music producers and that people would no longer buy traditional physical print books, which has proven to be largely untrue. There's something about the book which has really endured. And I think it has something to do with with childhood memories. Most people who become readers in later life have a very, very fond memories of being curled up on the lap of a parent or beside one or lying in bed or reading a book when they were sick or something. And it, that, that endures, that feeling of being able to curl up wherever you want with this with, and lose yourself in another world and feel a kind of kinship with other people from very different, with very different experiences from different backgrounds. I um, I have a Kindle and I read all our, obviously we produce ebooks and so I check all our ebook proofs. And obviously that is a helpful, um, that's a helpful adjunct to, um, to a publishing uh, business, being able to sell um, ebooks as well. And I think books are, there's a, they, people relish that escape from the kind of fast, frantic digital world, which we all have to inhabit so much of the time. The Swiss traveller, writer and photographer Nicolas Bouvier is unusual in the way he writes in a stream of consciousness about the world around him and how he feels in the instant so directly and openly. In The Scorpion Fish, his description of a bomb blowing up a bus and the grisly aftermath is not only very beautifully written, but mirrors his inner collapse and feeling of physical decrepitude, uh, as actually is an extraordinary description of termites and insects which populate the book incredibly yeah. and you one sort of wonders what's going on he how fragmented is he feeling internally you said how did you come across him you you just stumbled across way of the world or yeah it was a reference somewhere and you know running right. a, running a backlist uh publishing company you're always got your antennae out for new mm. new possible books books that have fallen out of print that are have been neglected and forgotten somewhere and we have you know, we have lots of people who keep us abreast or who make suggestions to us did the way of the world or whether I saw a, I might have been following a trail of some kind into yeah. the internet. I, I had I got a sort of feeling in my stomach that this was going to be a good book. And um, I got hold of a copy of the of the version that 
Robin had already translated. Or I think it was Polygon, wasn't it, Robin? It was. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was a it was a marvellous moment. One of those moments when which doesn't happen very often when I finish reading a book and really wish that I could that I could ring up the author and speak to them. And sadly I discovered that Bouvier had already died and I've been I've been sort of pursuing him in one way or in another ever since, you know, reading different bits, watching pieces, clips of him on YouTube. I've really tried terribly hard to get hold of his um the recordings he made as he journeyed, because as well as being a, a writer, he was a quite a gifted musician. He and Thierry Vernet, who he travelled with, was also a musician, and they spent a lot of time recording um, music in the Balkans, in Iran, um, somewhere. There is um, a treasury, I suspect, actually, in probably in the in the library in Geneva, and I must go and pull them out. He does describe oh. wonderfully cafes and people. Does that the old man playing an accordion? Is it or no a, ba- a bagpipe? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a fabulous description and, and Verne's drawings. Yeah. I did meet him uh, yeah. in Geneva. Ah. Yes, and also in Glasgow. I translated a book of his before I met him, though we had some correspondence, mm-hmm. and he was a wonderful writer. And because he had such an acute visual sense, his handwriting was fantastic. It actually looks a bit like a thicket of thorns, but it is a wonderful moment when you open an envelope and you see such distinctive and individual handwriting. I always got a handwritten letter. And so we corresponded a little when I translated uh, The Scorpion Fish. I translated that when I was at Karkinat and the book came to us through uh, George Steiner. He, of course, was living in Geneva for part of the time, and he wrote to Michael Schmidt at Karkinet mm-hmm. and said, there's this marvellous book by a man called Nicolas Bouvier called The Scorpion Fish, or The Poisson Scorpion, and he called it, Steiner, a dark, sparkling little masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And Michael, who doesn't read French, said, pass it over to me and said, what do you think? And I read it and I said, it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. He said, very well, you go ahead, you translate it. <laughs> so that was talking about the publisher as a gambler. I would say that was a huge gamble. I had only translated one book before from French. So I did go ahead and translate it and we had some correspondence and to me it's a real shame that he didn't meet Rose and Barnaby and know about mm. Eland because yeah. this would have been a publishing house at which he felt very much at home in. He mm. loved people who understood uh, visual culture, as Eland does. If you, you only have to look at their co- book covers, uh, the, a beautiful, beautiful cover that Rose has composed for uh, So It Goes. But he himself was an iconograph, uh, what he called a stalker of images. So he was a collector and, and, and a stalker of images. He was a photographer, so he understood all of that and he would have relished Elan's way of presenting their books, but also he felt himself to be um, very attuned to a tradition of writing in English about traveling. He yes. loved, for example, Robert Louis Stevenson. He loved uh, Henry Miller. Mm-hmm. 
So Carcanet, of course, are really known for their poetry, but then you mentioned Polygon. I'm just curious, finding a home with Elan, did he have rather a chequered publishing experience in English before? And usually, he wasn't published in English. Uh, The Scorpion Fish, I think, but Rose might correct me here, was the first translation into English, and then, but they definitely didn't want to do a travel book and the scorpion fish i think now we would call it auto fiction yes yes it's not quite travel it's yeah, not quite it's travel it's hallucinatory yeah, no, it's but nice. we can come back it to is that. absolutely <laughs> yeah we'll come but back the way of that. the yeah. world then was his classic book uh, that had been published in 1963 as yeah. rose said in in french and that the fact that that hadn't been translated was quite extraordinary and mm. I knew then the person who was the editor at Polygon, uh, Peter Kravitz, and he commissioned a report on the way of the world um, from a very good translator who said, yes, this is definitely something that's worth putting out into the world. And so uh, Polygon, a very adventurous publisher at that stage and indeed since, published that in 1992. So that came out in 1992 and made its way along, but then lapsed. As Rose says, things fall into their backlist and then they disappear. That's what happens when they fall off a cliff, yeah. People don't always realise that. Even such a wonderful book as that. There's something about him that is unlike, I think, almost any other travel writer, his willingness to completely lose himself in the pursuit of of some kind of an understanding of the situation he finds himself in he seems to be willing to 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 bear himself in a way that that very few uh other other travel writers that i can think of do he has this fantastic you know he was always famously very proud that it had taken him longer to get to japan because the journey of the way of the world begins in geneva they go, the whole of the way of the world takes him to India. Then he crosses India, goes to Ceylon, where the story from the scorpion fish occurs. Then he takes a boat and goes to Japan. It took him longer to get to Japan than it took Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, that's exactly, he sort of loops off. and Loops you know, off. And stays, that's proper travelling. Yeah, he's willing to give it the time it needs for him to be able to absorb... And he and in the way of the world, one of the wonderful things about the way of the world is that he and Thierry, his travelling companion, who was this fantastic artist and who did the wonderful black and white illustrations for the book, they stopped every winter. They stopped somewhere, so they spent the whole of one winter in Tabriz, and Azerbaijan. Yes, that's wonderful. That description. Yeah, and they exactly, and they really got to know it, and they. They tried to make money. You know, they had um, they had shows. He was writing as much as he could was selling his art, they allowed themselves the time to get very immersed and they got into, um, a, there's a fantastic relationship they have with, a, with the uh, innkeeper in Quetta, where they end up in Pakistan. And it really allows them to um, to inhabit a place and to get to know it in a particular way. As, as a writer, I think it's very important with him to remember how musical he was and how interested he was in musical in music. I think as a stylist, having a musical ear is incredibly important. Mm. And there's something about his prose that I think is like music. And it's very filmic as well. 
It's very strong, but not sort of aggressively so, if you like. I think he says an interesting thing. Uh, he says the traveller is always an enigma. He is at home everywhere and nowhere. His is a life of stolen moments, reflections, minute sensations, chance discoveries, and odds and ends. So when you talk about him pursuing something, it's not really a pursuit. It's the odds and ends. It's the minutiae. It's the, mm. as Rose said, living in the present moment that are yeah. really important to him. And one doesn't feel that he has an overarching purpose. He goes where he can go and he lives in that place to the utmost of his ability, which includes knowing about its history, absorbing its art, thinking about its language and its music and the culture in, in a very both deeply informed but also immediate way. It's not the way he weaves in whether he's writing about the, the, the Iron Diary, Scotland or Korea or China, I mean, the various different places and cultures he writes about, it's lightly done. So it's very readable and you absorb it. There's no, because you don't feel you're being sort of lectured to or anything. It just happens effortlessly. Well, I think that, I think what Robin said about he doesn't, he doesn't really have an agenda in, mm. in advance. He is discovering exactly. and you're discovering along with him. Exactly. And I love the way that he, I think you get the feeling with him, even in the, the sort of highly composed final work, you get the feeling with him that he never quite knew what was going to take him into interesting material. So he, yes. will, he will just set off, there's a marvellous bit in the Aran Isles on his first night, in the middle of this enormous storm, where he oh, just gets out, fantastic. where he goes outside and he bumps into a cart horse. I mean, it's sort of sort of absurd, but absolutely wonderful. He puts himself out in the darkness and he discovers what's there. Could I just say about translating So It Goes that, and thinking about lecturing, the interesting thing for me was because it covers quite a lot of territory, So It yes. Goes, um, yes. from Arran to the lowlands of Scotland to China to Korea, I tried to check up on things, but that's, uh, there is an element of impressionistic knowledge in Bouvier as well as deep knowledge. There is an extraordinary series of very different people that he encounters on the way. The Chinese tour guide is a wonderful character. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful he, Like a nail sticking out, who's beat, who, who's... What's that image he has? It like he's a nail sticking out. Who hasn't been bashed in? Hasn't or is that's right? They're trying to bash in, but isn't. What are some of the characters, Robin, that you particularly? Well, I think rather endearing in his page in his writing. I think that uh, that character sticks out for me. The Chinese guide is is a marvelous portrait, and really that section about. China is about that guide and what yeah. kind of insight uh, the person on the ground who understood, who was Chinese and was deeply read, uh, understood about China. Uh, yeah. This person also, of course, spoke very good French and one finds out that he had buried a LaRousse dictionary in his garden through the years of the Cultural Revolution in order to protect it. it it's an extraordinary portrait. 
the the friend Terence and Ketter in the way of the world is a is a marvelous portrait of a certain yeah. kind of shall I say Englishman washed up uh, in the Indian continent. That that's a marvelous portrait, mm-hmm. and in the Korean section he managed to travel there with his wife whom I had met Mm. once and it gave a kind of lightness of spirit to his travels there and which he said himself it was a huge pleasure for him mostly he liked he he did travel alone and he liked traveling alone but he felt the isolation and this traveling with his wife in Korea was a was more like a holiday for him there's a moment in that where they have gone up a mountain and come back down again in a day which nobody did. That was just the wrong thing to do, but he hadn't looked up any guides. So it was an extraordinary feat and very difficult and very frustrating. And they were sliding down at night and they came across somebody who was patrolling the area. And he had a gun with him, and he looked, he looked ready to challenge them. But then they have a conversation, and Bouvier is able to talk to him in Japanese. And of course, um, the island had been occupied by the Japanese, so he got to the bottom of why this man was so jumpy. And it was not only the ghosts on the on that mountain, but also because his wife was expecting a baby, and he was very anxious about it. So there was this human uh, connection there that's felt to me very typical of Bouvier's interactions, though he also was very cross with some people he met and annoyed by them and so forth, and you hear that too, but mm. but that interaction in the middle of the night in the middle of Korea in quite a dangerous situation uh, was a wonderful piece of uh, both comedy and humanity. But all three books is a great interest in mystery, occult, Absolutely. magic, a, whole, a lot of occult, Celtic goings-on in the Scottish. There's a combination. There is uh, a great deal of drink taken in these books. <laughs> and uh, he's often ill. And feverish he, and ill. Yeah. Uh, I think that is the key, that he's Just often mm, feverish and ill. And especially frequent, in the Scorpion Fish... He is, and in the Aaron Journal, he's not drinking at all because he, apart from tea, because he is has a fever, and this this feverish state often heightens his senses in extraordinary ways, and also provides him with this access to a slightly different world or a slightly different dimension and mm. one doesn't feel that he's inventing that in any way or that he's playing with it it's a serious business for him books span uh, decades starting in the 50s Bouvier writes you don't travel in order to deck yourself with exoticism and anecdotes like a Christmas tree but mm. so that the root plucks you rinses you rings you out makes you like one of those towels, threadbare with washing, that are handed out with slivers of soap in brothels. You leave far behind you the excuses or curses of your birthplace, and each filthy bundle lugged about in crowded waiting rooms on little station platforms, appalling in their heat and misery, you see your own coffin going by. Without this detachment and lucidity, how can you hope to convey what you have seen? But could you travel the way he did and where he did today 
I mean, in today's world, what's your take on then and now, really? Well, obviously you couldn't do the way the world trip from Geneva to the Khyber Pass in the way that he did in the in the 50s and madly in the little Fiat Topolino, uh, which is always breaking down. It's like a third character in, in the book, the yes. car, Thierry and Nicolas together. And I thought it was genius of, of Rose to find that photograph of Bouvier in the car for the cover because it looks like a turtle actually. So you couldn't do that because the, of the boundaries, the changed boundaries and the surveillance and so forth. And of course now uh, you have all sorts of navigational aids and telephones and so forth that Bouvier never had. So no, it's not the same. It's not just the practicalities of travel that, have, that make the difference in Bouvier's writing, it's a sensibility that is very far from being a journalist's sensibility. Uh, no, no harm meant to journalists. I, I read travel journal journalism with pleasure, but this is a, a real writer and thinker, and somebody who doesn't, on the whole, have to report into a deadline. Indeed, mm. waits ten years before he might put his reflections down about one thing or another. So. So it's a very different, It's he is much less constrained than many writers would be who would be thinking about when they had to deliver a manuscript or, or an article, though he certainly did write to time to make money uh, from time to time. But... Or in fact an angle. He writes of British folly and pillage of India, he's critical of the trade in ideologies, he's got very strong views and also there's that whole section in Where the World where he writes about Armenians. He has a very sharp view of individual, of the individual nature of people and places and cultures. So that is all of course extremely valuable as it always is and good writers who can open windows onto other worlds for us and make us feel empathetic. Mm. I just come back to that sensibility and the passage you read about seeing your own coffin go past. Yeah. Uh, there <laughs> is underneath it all a very acute consciousness of mortality. That is his individual sensibility. So you can't expect that to be replicated in other writers. That's one of his defining characteristics, I think, and and accounts for a strain of melancholy, I would say, a sort of sobriety underlying all of this, and also an acute appreciation of the moments of beauty and revelation. Yes, and I think that is, I think his his awareness of his mortality and of the, the passage of time. Yes. Something that absolutely allows him, well, it, it it makes him more sensitive to the moment mm. and to the beauty around him. Yes, because he says, he writes, it is best to know one's prayers by heart and make them short. One disappears quickly, even if it's while dancing. There are thoughts and messages and philosophies that come out of it. You write about philosophies and he, has, and he has widely read both in the classics and I think in Buddhism. And yeah traditions of Switzerland, so knew about both Catholicism and Calvinism, mm -hmm. and Calvinism is something he feels very strongly about and against. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is that 
that underlying philosophical cast of mind, I would say. And he also sees there's a sort of, it's very beautifully done, there's a certain brutality as well. There's that extraordinary description in the autobiographical piece right at the end of So It Goes, describing the death of a rat, spraying the walls with blood as its carotid artery is gashed by a flying fragment of glass in a dusty Bosnian cafe. It's extraordinary. And then also that that is immediately followed by his father's death from a ruptured aorta. I thought that was rather an interesting (laughs) juxtaposition. He's not afraid of (laughs) those difficult aspects of, 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 of life. Of human existence, of experience. In fact, he's fascinated by them, mm. and I think that's what makes him. That's what opens him in a way to those beyond, beyond the world that a lot of people see. He he's he's open to something that is of of a of a different realm, of a different a different way of perceiving life in a way. I think you used the word earlier, exposed, and I think that that's a good word as well as open to describe him, that he was very open to other cultures and ways of looking at things, but he also was not afraid of exposing himself. In fact, he thought, as I think you made clear in that earlier quotation, Georgia, he wasn't afraid of of being completely vulnerable to whatever came along and so he is in that way fearless i think and fearless in writing about it Mm. he is absolutely not he is part of the scene yes there there's nothing judgmental or no dare i say patronizing yes some writers Mm -hmm. patronizing and he just gets right he's just himself and maybe that's also why the people he comes across seem to take to him, they just get on in the end, even when there are one or two incidents he describes when he, there is one incident where he's rather scared and he has to get out. That's a slightly creepy magic moment. He's not some lofty observer and almost voyeuristic the way, perhaps that's also what dates some writing. You feel slightly the, the them and us thing. And there's none of that with him, as you say, he's absolutely, it's just there it all is. Robin, you were going to read a passage that exemplifies the essence of his writing, Voice and Spirit, that you particularly love, I think, from his Scottish, one of his Scottish pieces. Yes, so this comes from the volume of essays, So It Goes, that Rose commissioned, putting together three essays that were published in one book. And so since I'm here in Glasgow, I've chosen a piece from the essay, Scotland Travels in the Lowlands. And he's writing about one of the three most beautiful roads in the world, he says. Uh, he's got one in the Swiss canton of Vaux, and he's got one in Chinese Turkestan, and here, unexpectedly, is one uh, in the lowlands of Scotland. The road which climbs from Capaclu to the Megat Reservoir, then drops down to the Tala Reservoir, is a cantata for four voices. Water, hills, clouds, and the narrow shining ribbon of a road which climbs and descends at incredible angles, a succession of humpbacks and little passes. It is just wide enough for one car, only occasionally offering a passing place. But there's nobody else around on the splendid morning, and the saturated hills breathe and hiss and rise to touch the pale yellow clouds rushing through the blue sky. The hills are emerald green, flecked with saffron and bright brown, 
like a plane tree leaf beginning to yellow. No sign of any housing in this vast space, but sheep by the thousands, scattered across such huge slopes that they look like sleet caught in sunlight rather than real animals. Driving for a long time, carefully, without meeting another living soul, I am intoxicated by this Apollonian spectacle. Then, widening my eyes, I discovered the minute red mark of a shepherd, no bigger than a lowercase i, miles above the road. I got out my binoculars and leaned against the bank. It was his scarf that was red. I saw him squat down, cupping his hands to make the sound reach his dog, whose spine rippled as he speedily wound between the sheep and called out in his dog language. A moment afterwards, lovely funereal music rose from the car. I had left the radio on. A cloud hid the sun, and in the blink of an eye, this vast countryside became deathly, with unimaginable suddenness and violence. I saw the shepherd caught in an uncompleted gesture like a pillar of salt. The dog, coiled up, was no more than a lifeless ball of hair. For thirty miles around, sheep were lying on the slopes, their legs already rigid. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the rusting carcass of my new car pushed aside to clear the road. The same unearthly music continued to issue forth, and the sky was a huge bowl of smoky crystal. This retinal image lasted about 20 seconds. Then the sun came out, and everything re resumed moving and the appearance of reality. Other landscapes have played a similar trick on me. Once, when I was walking along the verge of a half-dry river south of Isfahan, another time in a twilit wasteland suburb of Nagoya, still pockmarked with bomb craters, full to the brim with June rain, where a solitary young woman, naked to the waist, was doing motocross. I took to my heels, but that was a long time ago. Not this time. Today I know that some places, the Bretons say, care, either exceptionally hideous or splendid, and where man is almost absent, fool us like smokes and mirrors, steal from our hearts a latent image, and enlarge it like a gigantic magnifier. It's true to say that on entering this deserted, indescribable region, I hadn't seen anything as beautiful in a long time. Mm. I had thought of death at the same time as reflecting how miraculous it was to be alive, precisely there. I returned to the car at 11.59. At midday, the music which had accompanied this strange trip stopped. It was Sibelius's Symphony Number no. 1. Through an amphitheatre of rounded mountains, from here on, silent and swollen like risen loaves of bread, I descended towards the Tala Reservoir. So It Goes, The Way of the World and Scorpionfish are published by Elan Publishing and are available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy them from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting www.booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. To find out more about Elan Publishing and their books, visit website www.travelbooks.co.uk and their Twitter feed is at Elan Publishing. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Book Blast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. 
Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, and to translator Robin Marsak and publisher Rose Rogerson for taking the time to be interviewed. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast. Mm-hmm.